before I know it, there's uh, 10, 15 cousins, family, friends all over the country that I'm working with. And I saw a common pattern. Uh, the reason why they were struggling wasn't because they weren't working hard or they weren't bright or they didn't have great teachers. It was because they had gaps in their knowledge. And tutoring was helping a lot, but it was hard. It was getting harder and harder to scale. With my background in software, I was always fascinated how, how could software help people learn. So I started writing these automated exercises to help my cousins have as much practice as they need, fill in their gaps. For me as their tutor or teacher to understand what they were working on, where they were struggling, nowhere to dig in deeper when we got on the phone. And that was the first Khan Academy. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Sal Khan is the founder and CEO of Khan Academy, a nonprofit organization with a mission to provide a free, world-class education for anyone, anywhere. He's also the founder of Khan Lab School, a nonprofit laboratory school in Mountain View, California, and Schoolhouse World, a new nonprofit he started during the pandemic to offer free tutoring over Zoom. As an entrepreneur, he has changed the world for the better, influencing millions of lives and making such a difference in the world of education. The thing I admire so much about Sal is that he founded Khan Academy as a 501c3 nonprofit in 2008. There were plenty of opportunities over the years to make it a for-profit company and countless VCs knocking on his door with millions of dollars. But Sal Khan understood Khan Academy was bigger than any payout or personal financial gain. He wanted to choose the right route that would affect and better the lives of the most people. Khan Academy's platform includes more than 70,000 practice problems, as well as videos and articles that cover a range of K-12 subjects. Khan Academy's learning system is mastery-based, which allows students to master key concepts at a pace that's right for them before moving on to more challenging content. The organization partners with school districts across the country and the world that serve students who are historically under-resourced. In the United States, school districts use Khan Academy to help teachers differentiate instruction. And get this, nearly 20 million learners use Khan Academy every month in 190 countries in 51 languages. Sal has been recognized as one of Time's 100 most influential people in the world. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. If this year has taught us anything, it's that tomorrow may look nothing like today. But Schwab knows that successful financial planning can help propel net worth by 2.7 times. That's why Schwab offers a variety of easy, flexible financial planning options that can rise to meet any of life's many curveballs. Whether it's making a complimentary retirement plan online or chatting directly with a financial consultant, anyone can look forward to planning with Schwab. Learn more at schwab.com slash plan. In his book, The One World Schoolhouse, 
Sal outlines his vision for the future of education. The ideas in One World are the basis for Khan Lab School. Of course, I had to start my conversation with Sal by asking him about his upbringing and his early education. When you're growing up as a child, you really don't have a frame of reference of what alternative realities would look like. And even now, I really don't know what an alternative reality would have been like. I I can obviously talk to friends and I have a, a bit more of a worldview. But on balance, I consider myself pretty fortunate to have been born and raised outside of New Orleans. My mom had an arranged marriage to my dad in 1971. My sister was born in 73. Uh, I was born in 1976. And unlike a lot of more of the traditional South Asian immigration stories, my father was a physician. He came to do his residency at Charity Hospital. It was all due to the Immigration Act of 1965, shortage of healthcare workers. But un- unlike the traditional narrative, uh, my, my parents did separate when I was two years old. So I never really I got to know my father. And, you know, my mom had thought about moving back to, and by this point, East Pakistan had become Bangladesh. She had thought about moving back, but I think to a large degree for myself and my sister, she thought, well, maybe, maybe I should stick around. At the same time, a lot of her brothers had moved to New Orleans to study. And so we did have a support network, actually a fairly large family. And even though Louisiana is not known for its education system, you know, we always used to joke, you know, thank God for Mississippi type of thing. (laughs) Uh, I have to say that the schools I went to, I would say they were your average Louisiana public schools, which once again are not noteworthy in the broader world. But I and my sister were very fortunate that at early stages, we had some good teachers who really invested in us. And I was extra fortunate because my sister, who was three years older, was really a star student. She got put into the gifted program. And it gave, I don't think I was particularly noteworthy in kindergarten or first grade. In fact, I was in speech therapy and I thought it was the gifted program because it it felt like enrichment. But eventually, because I was Farah's brother, uh, people, they kept testing me. (laughs) They're like, surely, surely you must have something going on there. And then by second, third grade, they'd put me into it. And and that was transformational uh, because they put you into these enrichment programs where you really have a lot more self-direction. You have a lot more time with the teachers. I get to explore. And uh, so, yeah, I think overall, you know, it wasn't perfect. A lot of my worldview of how education could be reformed was driven by that experience, but I would be remiss not to be very grateful uh, for the experience I had uh, growing up there. And, and, and on top of that, I didn't realize it, but New Orleans is an incredible, I didn't appreciate until I left how colorful of a place New Orleans is and how rich the culture is. Growing up, I thought Mardi Gras was a national or an international <laughs> holiday. Because it was so much better than any other holiday. Totally. I mean, you pretty much did no schoolwork for a month while you know, because everyone, including the teachers, would go to parades, sometimes show up the next morning, not fully prepared <laughs> to, to teach their lesson. It, we used to have king cakes every day. There was a king and a queen. So that's just a one small dimension. And we had a very interesting, colorful family that was both very Bengali, but very New Orleanian at the same time. So I, I consider that a pretty nice childhood. I love that mix. I love that. I want to ask you because... You know, now I I live in New York City and there's been a lot of uh, back and forth about the gifted and talented programs here. And I'm curious when you did get finally put into that, and I know you're thanking your sister, but I'm sure you you did did okay. Did that give you a certain level of confidence? And how much does confidence play in those initial first years in terms of long-term education? I think it makes a huge difference. 
I don't remember a lot of second grade, but I remember it was, well, maybe it was third grade. I forgot, but I remember the day and there was, in hindsight, I realized it was some type of a psychologist that sat with me for three hours. I don't think they do this anymore (laughs) and gave me just a series of puzzles one after another. And I remember she gave me these puzzles where I had to solve, make patterns as quickly as possible. And she was timing me and I was like getting really into it. She even told me what the school record was. And I beat one, one of the, you know, I was super into it. She started showing me more and more and more and more math. And I kept saying, okay, teach me how to do it. Teach me how to do it. And I kept, and that experience was great, but just having, even for that three hours, for half a school day, having this clearly interesting psychologist work with me was a memorable moment. I felt to your point, special. And then once you're in these programs, they take you out of one of your class periods a day to go into this enrichment, which I thought was, I was getting away with something. I remember the first day where Miss Roussel and Miss Rue Krause said, Hey, so what do you want to work on? I'm like, this is cool. Like I, can pick. <laughs> I'm like, I like to draw. I like to play games. They're like, well, draw and play games. Then I was like, what? This is cool. And the fact that you could be taken out of your classes and be expected to keep up with them at the same time. Also, I think was, was a mark of confidence it gave you confidence, made you feel better. Now I will say, you know, in this debate, and I tend to avoid getting into policy debates, but I will get into this one. I think there's so much to be, there's so much positive about these programs. Uh, Once again, my path could have been completely different had I not had access to this. And I know actually a lot of the other kids in where, where I grew up was not, there were a lot of kids who were, you know, I was on free lunch. Almost every kid in the gifted program was on the free lunch. Many of them uh, did not have parents who went to college. It made a huge, huge difference for all of us. Now, I do think calling it gifted is a little bit off. It kind of implies that you know you just get these you know certain things in your DNA. I remember in Louisiana, I think they took the talented out because you know a lot of kids might, might have been maybe maybe gifted. The talent we could debate, but also you know I do think it's wrong to base it on some notion of IQ, which is a very like mid twentieth century, almost like eugenics type of thing. I've actually been trying to circulate this idea of instead of basing it on on some perception of IQ, make it so that anyone can be in the whatever program you call it. We could call it instead of gifted and talented, we could call it the persistent and resilient program. Right. And but to stay in the program, you have to say do an hour of Khan Academy a week. And I think that would have appealed to seven-year-old Sal. And then just the very act of putting that hour in, when once again that's effort-based you're going to advance and then that'll unlock a lot of other things. So I think there's ways to restructure it, to keep the good things about it, but to make it more transparent and equitable. Before you came up with Khan Academy, and I, I want to go into that story very quickly because I know you've, you've talked about it a million times, I am sure. But in terms of Khan Academy for Sal, before you ever invented it, what was that like? Did you were you a self-starter? Were you teaching yourself a lot when you were growing up? How did you actually learn? You know, my best reflection on it, I remember sitting in a lot of classes and sometimes feeling like, wow, you know, this this isn't the most interesting thing that's going on in my life. (laughs) But there was a luxury there, which is I had time. And so I remember sitting and doodling and just to really kill time, I would play with the concepts in ways that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily, wasn't part of the lesson plan. I was like, okay, but why does this work? Why does long division algorithm work? Or why does this happen? Or how does this algebraic equation relate to that one? And as I got further and further in my academics, I realized 
how powerful that was because my little pondering and playing around because I had the luxury to do so, it made further on mathematics really intuitive. By the time I started getting into high school level math and and especially college level math, but even high school, middle school level math, that's when you start to see a lot of your peers, many of whom are very bright folks who could beat me to chess match, start to really struggle in things like mathematics. And it was clear that I was struggling I was finding it, frankly, intuitive because I had done all of that exploration before. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the difference, I went to BU, you went to MIT and Harvard. I was doodling Jets helmets and probably Saints helmets. And you were doodling about uh, math equations. And it's probably one of the factors that I could imagine. So Sal, how did the actual idea come about or how did you originate Khan Academy? You rewind back to 2004. I was a year out of business school. I was working as an analyst in a hedge fund. My original background was in tech, but post-business school, I discovered a love for finance and I wanted to pay off my student debt as quickly as possible as well. And I had just gotten married. My wife grew up in New Jersey, so that's where the wedding was. And I had a bunch of family fly up for it. And then right after the wedding, some of them came up and spent a 4th of July weekend with me in Boston. And it just came out of, out of conversation It was my aunt that actually told me that her daughter, my cousin, Nadia, was having trouble in math, that she had done not so well on a placement exam the previous year at the end of sixth grade, that put her into a slower math track in seventh grade. And she was already concerned, but I was even more concerned because I I knew in the American system, and my wife, my aunt had never gone to a school in this country, but if you get tracked there in seventh grade, it has huge implications about where you might end up even in 12th grade or or beyond. Mm -hmm. So when Nadia comes in the room, I say, hey, Nadia, if you're up for it, I'm happy to help. She says, I just don't get unit conversion. I said, I'm 100% sure you're capable of understanding unit conversion. If you're up for it, when you go back to New Orleans, I'm happy to tutor you. She agreed. I think she was skeptical. Slowly but surely, it was after work for me, after school for her. I started, we were on the phone. We used instant messenger, whatever would work. And honestly, two weeks of it, we're just trying to get her to be a little bit more confident and engage and not completely check out with some of the things that we were working on. But after about three, four weeks, she'd gotten unit conversion. She'd gotten a little bit caught up with her class. And then after about a month or two, she'd gotten, frankly, a little ahead of her where her class should be. And that's when I called up her school. And I said, you know, I really think Nadia Rahman should be able to retake that placement exam from last year. They said, who are you? I said, I'm her, <laughs> I'm her cousin. And they let her. And that same Nadia who was put into a slower math track was then put not even into the normal math track, was put into the advanced math track. So I was hooked. It was a little intervention on my part. It Hopefully it did change the trajectory of her, at least mathematically. I enjoyed, frankly, just connecting with family that was 2,000 miles away. Uh, so I started tutoring her younger brothers. Then over the next few months, word spreads in my family, free tutoring is going on. <laughs> and before I know it, there's... Uh, 10, 15 cousins, family, friends all over the country that I'm working with. And I saw a common pattern. Uh, The reason why they were struggling wasn't because they weren't working hard or they weren't bright or they didn't have great teachers. It was because they had gaps in their knowledge. And tutoring was helping a lot, but it was was getting harder and harder to scale. With my background in software, I was always fascinated how, how could software help people learn. So I started writing these automated exercises to help my cousins have as much practice as they need, fill in their gaps for me as their tutor or teacher to understand what they were working on, where they were struggling, know where to dig in deeper when we got on the phone. And that was the first Khan Academy. I remember looking for a domain. It was a web-based app, whatever you want to call it. And I looked up other types of names. And then finally I said, well, what about like Khan Academy? And 
it was partially a joke where I was thinking that, you know, it's just me and my family. But in the back of my mind, I was also thinking that I wanted this to be more than just a piece of software. I had grandiose ambitions that maybe there is a way that this could grow into a real academy of sorts. And it was very delusional with only 10, 15 cousins. And I was just this homebrew software. But that that was the genesis. And you fast forward to 2006. I had been doing this for about a year and a half at this point. And I was showing off my software at a dinner party. And the host of the party, a lot of my friends always said, what's the business model, et cetera. So I right, always say, right. there, there is no business model. This is a passion project. And I actually felt the need to protect it emotionally from your typical Silicon Valley skepticism around like, why are you doing this? I'm like, I'm doing it because it's fun. Full stop. <laughs> but this friend, he said, well, this is cool. I think this, you know, so I was getting encouragement and he said, but how are you scaling your lessons? And I said, it's hard. And he said, well, why don't you record them as videos on YouTube? And I was originally very skeptical. I even told him YouTube's for cats playing piano, it's for dogs on skateboards. <laughs> yeah. I also, it, t- typical technologist blinders said, that's very low tech. I'm writing this fancy software. Now you're telling me just to make videos and upload it onto YouTube. But I went home that weekend and I thought about it. I was like, yeah, there could be something interesting about that. And so I made the videos. And you know, there was a little bit of, a, I don't talk a lot about this, but if I really think about what was going on at that point in my life, I was almost thinking about what what if I got hit by a bus, could could I also create like artifacts that could be a legacy for my family? I didn't have kids at that point, but I was even imagining what you know, future sure. kids or whatever. So then I started making the videos and my cousins famously told me that they liked me better on YouTube than in person. <laughs> and, and what they were saying, I think, you know, it's, it could be a mixed message, is that they liked having me on demand. They liked pausing and repeating. They didn't have to feel shame right. if they had to review something from a few years ago. It was always on demand. They continued to appreciate me taking interest in their life and, and being available on the phone. So I kept going and it soon became clear that people who were not my cousins were using the resources. They started sending me letters. Some were just thank yous, but some of them were almost transformational or Mm. actually transformational people. This changed my life. And I was like, wow, like that video or that series of videos changed your life. You know, this allowed me to go back to college or not fail algebra or think that I'm capable. So I was hooked. And by 2008, 2009, I frankly had, there were about 50 to 100,000 folks who were using these resources, both the videos and the software. And I had trouble focusing on my day job, which I liked. I wasn't just dying to quit my day job, but that's when I set it up as a not-for-profit with a mission, free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. I love that you set it up as a nonprofit, and you talk about your friend who's like, what's the business model? What's the scale? And you came from finance and that background. And how come initially you were adamant about saying this is a nonprofit and not a for-profit business? So I think there's a lot of psychological cross-currents that were going on in my mind. In the late 90s, I did what any sensible computer science graduate did in the late 90s, and I joined a series of startups out here in Silicon Valley. And in my spare time, I would daydream about what my options would be worth and et cetera. And I did not get out in time, and the bubble burst. And I remember just how, what an emotional roller coaster that was. Mm. And that's why I decided to go to business school to just take two years and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I started telling myself a narrative back then that I'm just not cut out for entrepreneurship. I don't have the emotional fortitude. I didn't like how it got ugly, how people were grabbing and for equity and then pointing fingers at each other when things go bad. And But even though I told myself that, I kept being gravitated towards entrepreneurial ventures. Even the 
first job I had out of business school in finance was at a one person. I was the first employee. It was my boss and me. And so that was entrepreneurial and I really enjoyed it, but I kept telling myself, well, it's not a startup startup. It's a, we're, we're providing a service. We're investing on behalf of others, et cetera. So when this started to look to a lot of people like a tech venture, <laughs> there's software here, it's scaling. There seems to be product market fit. I actually tried to protect it from that train of thought. And there were people who were coming up to me saying, hey, this is interesting. We'll write a check right now. And you could quit your job and do it. And I wasn't really well-versed in what meant to be a not-for-profit at the time. Ironically, the only class in business school that I... They don't fail anyone, but they'll tell you if you're in the bottom 10%. The only class that I was in the bottom 10% was called social enterprise because I was so skeptical of it, of a lot of social enterprises. Are these things... Do they exist really to serve people? Or are they really about optics and feeling good about ourselves? But when I was getting letters from folks, and obviously something subconsciously was happening when I called it Khan Academy, but I was getting letters from these folks all over the world saying how it was transforming their lives. I was saying a success in the for-profit world would be, you'd be the next Google or Facebook. And even that would, something of a daydream in the education space, although now (laughs) there are a few data points there. But I said, what was the home run in the not-for-profit space? Well, you could stay true to a mission, not for one generation, but potentially for hundreds of years. What if Khan Academy could be like the foundation in the Isaac Asimov Foundation series that keeps the galactic empire from entering a dark ages or could help uplift society to another level? Uh, What if it could be like the next Oxford or Harvard or Smithsonian? And even at that point when I was making this decision, I had once done just the back of the envelope calculation and Khan Academy... Khan Academy was already serving, I think the numbers were more people per month than Harvard had served in its history, even back then. And and obviously in a different way, not a completely fair comparison, but I say, wow, if we grow another order of magnitude or three orders of magnitude, which was completely possible, this could be a real institution for billions of people for a very long time to come. Very grandiose thinking for a guy, you know, (laughs) who's just trying to figure out what to do with this thing. And, you know, it's just, you only live once, swing for the fences. I've always prided myself in living below my means. I always said, if my, me and my family have our health, we have a decent upper middle class house and a couple of Hondas in the driveway, I'm happy. I love that because for so many folks and so many people in your position at that point, I could only imagine the multitude of people coming at you from in Silicon Valley and VCs and to stay true to that and to really be able to have the foresight to see what your legacy would be or what the legacy of Khan Academy would be if you followed your your heart and what you wanted to do as a nonprofit. And it's really incredible because if you look at it now from that little dream you had or or teaching, you know, 15 of your relatives over hundreds of millions of registered users, probably tons more And really what I'm most impressed with, especially as our world becomes much smaller, is just providing this level playing field for really anyone who has a computer and can access the internet. And does how does that make you feel to have been able to do that? Well, on one level, I I consider myself incredibly fortunate that this thing that I would frankly do for free as a passion project. I am doing it. I did do it for free as a passion project for four or five years. I now get to devote all of my energies to. And as something grows and scales, it gets more complex. You sometimes have to do things that aren't the things that you wake up in the morning to do. 
more operational, help build teams. These things are never easy, but for the most part, I'm working with amazing people who are similarly guided to a similar mission, both full-time employees at Khan Academy, over 200 folks now, hundreds of thousands of folks donating, partner organizations. And it's nice. I would say at least half of what I get to do is still what I've always wanted to do. I still make videos. I still ideate with the team about software. I've started a lab school to help think about, well, what could a school system look like in this new world? We've started another thing around free tutoring called schoolhouse.world. So a lot, a lot of that entrepreneurial energy I get to do on a daily basis, and even the things that are more operational, more administrative, it's nice to always be able to return to that true north of like, wow, we're reaching 100 million students, 200 million students. This is worth it. This is worth, I, every now and then someone asks me, well, what's, what's next for you? And I'm just more of this. Now, and on the other side of that, it is easy for it to become overwhelming. My identity is so invested in this. And anytime your identity is so invested in mm-hmm. something, when you imagine it not reaching its potential or failing in some way, it affects your identity. And as Buddha would say, attachment is the cause of all suffering. So I've learned to be much more mindful of that. Make my, tell myself, look, Sal, all you can do in a given period of time is do what, make sure your true north is, your, is a real true north. Make sure you're truly living by it. You're keeping your ego in check and other motivations in check. And you are putting one step, one foot forward in the right direction and the chips will fall where they do. Now, there is a little bit of impatience, a little bit of urgency. You know, I've been on this now since tutoring Nadia 15 years, 16, actually, wow, 17 years. I've been, this has been a full-time job for me for 12 years now. And so it does feel, I'm in my mid forties now. I I used to be the young entrepreneurial (laughs) wonderkin. Now I'm fully middle-aged. Yeah, I know. And, And so I'm like, wow, you know, every now and then I wake up and I was like, is 45 plus 15 really 60? Like I, I got to be doing the math wrong. Surely it's only 50. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, everyone, it's Adam DeGrade from the David versus Goliath podcast, a brand new podcast dedicated to helping small business owners everywhere dominate and crush it in their market. On the David versus Goliath podcast, we interview the most successful, energetic, and informative entrepreneurs in their respective space. There you can learn the secrets and the tips that they've used to grow and succeed in their market. David versus Goliath podcast is completely dedicated to helping you with your plans, your people, your technology, your process, and the courage it takes to slay that giant and win more business in your market. On the DVG podcast, you'll get inspiration, education, and activation. I'm your host, Adam DeGrade. Watch us on YouTube, Spotify, Rumble, or listen to us on any podcast application you can imagine. That's the David versus Goliath podcast. We'll see you there. And our next sponsor. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. And we're back. You're going to have an incredible legacy in terms of what you did for humanity. And that's what I love about your story and what you've been able to do, all from trying to do good for a family member. And I do want you to talk because you mentioned the Khan Lab Academy. 
How did that idea come up off of Khan Academy? And can you explain a little bit more about what you're doing there? Yeah, I think a big difference, and this connects to the previous question, if I were, if this was a for-profit, you scale to some level, and then maybe you get some type of liquidity or IPO. And if yep. it's worth many billions of dollars, everyone, including yourself, might call it a success. I think what's interesting about the not-for-profit, especially with the big mission, like free world-class education for anyone anywhere, is that I see our work and my life's work, to your point, you know, in the limited amount of time we have on this planet is trying to get as close to that as possible. And so within the Khan Academy universe, how do we not only make all the core academic material from pre-K through the core of college with practice, et cetera, available? How do we make it personalized, mastery-based? How do we connect it to credentials, which is another thing that I'm working on, college credit, ways to get connected with employment, but also what could the education system itself look like? And so that's why seven years ago, I started Khan Lab School, which is now Khan Lab Schools, to say in this world where we have tools like Khan Academy and others, what could the school day look like? I'd written a book called One World Schoolhouse in 2012. The last third of the book imagined education of the future. How do we, what, what does a transcript of the future look like? It's more competency-based. It's more of your portfolio of creative work. What could the school day work look like? If students are able to learn at their own time and pace on a Khan Academy, can we use the human-to-human time for more projects, for more discussion, for more collaboration? And it's one thing to write it, as I always knew, but it's, it's a whole other thing to try to implement it. So that's where we put it into practice. And at the time, my oldest child was five years old. So it wasn't a coincidence. He needed a place to go. And I didn't want to be a hypocrite preaching to the rest of the world about personalization and mastery learning, and then not making my own children go through that same thing. And I have in the back of my mind, even pre-Con Academy, dreamt of being something of a Dumbledore figure in my old age at a Hogwarts-like school. (laughs) And Khan Academy in some ways is that, but there's nothing like a real school. And so over the last seven years, KLS, Khan Lab School, has become a full K-12 school. We had our first graduates last year. Wow. And I've learned so much, both things that have made me optimistic and other things like that was harder than I expected. But it really is, I think, about to enter another leg. We're about to start a virtual high school. We're calling it the Khan World School. That could potentially scale to, to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of students. We imagine it not being in a vacuum, but being able to work with the physical setting so that you can get the best of both worlds. When I started Con Lab School, some of my board members were saying, why are you doing this? This doesn't scale. Like we're already reaching tens of millions. Why do you want to do something that mm-hmm. would reach several tens of students? And I always said, I wanted to just understand the model and see if we could create something that scales. And as you can tell, I'm always in the back of my mind, even when I'm tutoring my cousins, thinking about scale. And what's exciting about KLS it's very likely that in the next two years, there's going to be five or six of them. And then we can have a virtual program that could scale to tens of thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands or or millions. And once again, this is all in service to how do we show that there's another way of doing things? Another way of doing things that's both students are healthier and happier, they're mastering more content, their outcomes are better, and it's actually more efficient and economical and the faculty and the teachers are happier. If we can do that, then we're doing, then we're, we're doing well. And during the pandemic, the whole world in terms of shutting down, more people getting more comfortable with virtual learning, online learning, videos. How did that play out or affect Khan Academy? A few ways. You know, when we when it happened, our traffic increased by a factor of of two or three. We went from 30 million learning minutes a day to about 90 million learning minutes per day on the platform. It did this dream of not people just learning from the site, but also being able to learn from each other. 
which I've always advocated for in classrooms. Mm. Like if students are working on Khan Academy, they shouldn't just be at staring at the screen. They should be talking to each other, helping each other. The pandemic made me and several others think hard about, well, the time is now. We got to scale that up. So we created a platform called schoolhouse.world, which gives anyone on the planet free tutoring. And the way that it works is it leverages volunteership. A lot of people are skeptical. How are you going to get volunteers and are they going to be high quality? It turns out you get arguably better people than the people who frankly need to tutor for that. We're getting retired teachers and software engineers and scientists and amazingly precocious high school and college students. That has led to universities saying, hey, we're interested in these students who can tutor a subject. So if you're a highly rated tutor in calculus, that's more impressive than just getting a high score on an assessment in calculus. So that's led to another incentive for someone to tutor. So that's another domain area that we're starting to get into in credentials. We started to think about, we know with this pandemic, so many more students than normal are going to fall out of the system. Even before the pandemic, 70, 80% of kids in the US, when they go to college, they have to take remediation at essentially the middle school level. So that's where we started to accelerate efforts. We're doing a partnership with Howard University where students get mastery. This is in Title I high schools. They get mastery on essentially an Algebra II course on Khan Academy. Howard University is going to give them transferable college credit in college algebra, which would immediately put them ahead of 95% of college-bound students. These are the types of things that we have accelerated that probably would have taken five years for us to get to otherwise. Yeah. Just in terms of the amount of time we have left, just a couple last quick questions. Back, I think in 2012, you were listed among Time's 100 most influential people. I'm sure you've gotten many awards since then. But like, how does that make you feel? Like, what's that feeling like? You know, I, I know it's a, a, an accolade, but like, what was that for you? What would that feel like? Oh, I take all that with a grain of salt. It is true, especially in 2010, to, well, 2011, Khan Academy really got on people's radar. Bill Gates started speaking very publicly how he was using it. We got a ton of press, 60 minutes, time, you know, all of these things. And when that was happening, I think it's when that happens for anyone, I think it's very important for you to have a clear view of what part of this is good for what you're trying to do and what part of it could be a pitfall. (laughs) And uh, I knew it was good in that it was increasing the awareness of Khan Academy. Just the 60 minutes piece at that time took us from 3 million users a month to 4 million users a month. I told the 60 minutes folks, like how many pieces can you directly connect to a million more students learning every month? And then that's obviously grown up, you know, now we're at 20, 30 million. So those were all good things. And yes, it was nice. And it is sometimes nice to go to some of these events and meet these people that you have, you've read about your whole life. But I also recognize, you know, I think, you know, I'm a C grade celebrity, but you know, (laughs) you see a lot of even A grade celebrities oftentimes don't end up all that happy. And that's because it's very easy to for your identity, your ego to be attached to being invited to the right parties or being on the right lists. So I've always tried to make sure my ego is in check and saying, okay, Sal, you're working on this project, which you love. This is your true North, your true friends, your family, your health. If you have those, that's everything. All this other stuff, if it serves the mission, awesome. I love that because it's so true. Something I always try and live by, tell myself, journal on about health and family and past that, the successes and from all the people I've interviewed on this show, billionaires and people, really at the end of the day, the only people that I found that are are truly happy are the ones that are really doing what they love 
and who understand what you just talked about. And for you to have understood that at such a, a young age, and also like you talked about, not attaching your identity, even though it has your name on it, to the success or failure of your business is such an incredible lesson for all entrepreneurs. It's really amazing you kind of understood this. Did, did that come from your parents, your upbringing? Why do you think you always felt that way? I think it came from suffering. <laughs> it, you know, I remember in the 80s, I don't know if you remember, they used to have these uh, miniseries, Passion of Christ. And you yeah. know, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. And I'm like, why do they call this the Passion of Christ? And I later learned that passion actually meant suffering. That was the yeah. original etymological root of the word. And it is true. When you have a passion for something, it's not that you just like it. It's like you like it so much and you're so obsessed with it that you actually do suffer. And I think any entrepreneur tends to care about something so much. They have a passion, a true sense of the word passion, and they suffer. They wake up in the middle of the night. They wonder what's going to happen if this fails. They feel like the world is on their shoulders. And I realized pretty early on that that was not actually pretty early on. I still fall into that. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I often. do it all the time. I but I remind it. myself one day the sun will subsume the earth. Yeah. Uh, I like the poem Ozymandias where it talks about this famous conqueror or whatever. And all you can see are the feet of his statue. You know, here lies mm -hmm. the once great Ozymandias and like the sand has taken over. So no matter what we do, we always have to keep it in perspective and, and not take ourselves too seriously. And that lightens our load and it actually allows us to be more rested and centered and yeah. actually take action because sometimes the weight of the seriousness or the perceived weight paralyzes you. Oh, uh, so, so true. Yeah. So this is something I, it's a coping mechanism. About six, seven years ago, I also started taking meditation very seriously. I meditate yeah. regularly. Love it. Still my mind. I am not this body. I am not this identity. I am just awareness. And when you do that, it just makes everything a little bit lighter in a very positive way. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love that you do that. I, I've, I've used a lot of those same techniques. I still battle it all the time, even in my little business thinking and waking up, oh my God, what this means. And the way you put it there just puts it at ease. And you do become more comfortable and better off when you have that mindset. And I want to ask you the last question I have to ask you is, what happened to your cousin, Nadia? <laughs> I've joked over the years with Nadia that there's a, she better be successful. There's a lot. <laughs> she's doing well. She's in a, she ended up, and I, I can't take no credit for this. She's actually an incredible writer. She ended up going to Sarah Lawrence. And then she ended up after college doing some research for a while. She was, she got interested into biology and psychology. She was doing research on, on veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And she just recently started a PhD program in clinical psychology. She, so, you know, knock on wood, she seems to be doing well. I love it. Sal, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure talking to you. I blown away by what you have done, what you have created. We have tons of entrepreneurs on this show. And I can probably say for what you have done and created maybe has the most impact out of all those businesses that I could think of. So thank you for uh, starting to tutor your uh, family at that one time. I appreciate that, Robert. Thanks for having me on. And look, I hope what you say is true, but even to an earlier question, as far as we've come, we have a long way to go. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a marathon. <laughs> You'll get there, no doubt. Thank you. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, 
please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost. And I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. That's R-O-B-E-R-T. T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.